Oh my goodness. Now we're in church, right? Hey, uh, we're going to continue, as Danielle said this morning, we're going to continue our series, The Story of the Bible. And today we're going to take this quantum leap forward in the timeline. If you remember last week, Danielle talked about Abraham and how God made this promise to him. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. You ever get tired of waiting? Nobody. Wow, this is such a patient group this morning. I could just stand up here for 20 minutes and not say anything. You probably get tired of waiting. When I think about waiting too long, I think about Abraham's family. God gave him this promise and it would be 300 years later that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, would lead his large family into Egypt in an effort to escape a famine that was impacting most of the known world. In Egypt, for the next 150 years, Jacob's family would thrive and grow. But that growth came at a cost. As this family grew in number, they also grew as a legitimate threat to the reigning Pharaoh of Egypt. And for that reason, all of Jacob's family would be forced into slavery for the next 400 years. They were beaten down. They were oppressed. They were controlled simply as a resource in the Egyptian economy. So if you add all of that up, It was more than 850 years from the time God made this promise to Abraham. And they've been waiting for God to make good on that promise. And I have to wonder, how are they holding on? And then, then comes Moses. Moses enters the scene, proclaims himself the leader of this people that's now a million strong. And says to Pharaoh, you have to let them go. And God, through Moses, does a series of ten plagues, miraculous events, to help secure their release and change Pharaoh's mind. You would think that as this group of people were watching miracle after miracle after miracle, they would enthusiastically follow the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. The problem is they've been enslaved for four centuries. And over those four centuries, they had lost their connection to the Abrahamic promises. They'd lost their faith in the one true God, and they had begun to worship the pagan gods of the Egyptians right alongside the God of the universe. Finally, they were freed by Pharaoh. Finally, they would make the journey to the promised land, Canaan, But for them, it was more than just a change of location. This was also for them a spiritual journey. As they worked at rediscovering who God was and what he expected from them, what it meant to follow God. And with Moses as their leader, it would take them 40 years to make the journey from Egypt to Canaan, a distance of 250 miles. That means their average progress was less than 100 feet a day. That's slow. But it wasn't the distance between Egypt and Canaan that made the journey tough. 
It wasn't the terrain differences between Egypt and Canaan that made the journey tough. The issue was the distance between God's expectations and their obedience. It took all of them, including Moses, 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness to fully understand the kind of relationship that God wanted with them. So just a few months into this journey towards the promised land, the Israelites arrive at the base of Mount Sinai where Moses was to receive the law from God. From this point forward in Scripture, it's always referred to as the law of Moses because that's who God gave it to to carry it to the people. The law would be the guidebook for how to live their life with God for the next 1,400 years until the birth of Christ. Now, I would guess if we did like a survey around the room, we would not, even among all of us combined, be able to name everything that was in the law of Moses. That's understandable because it covered four of the first five books of the Old Testament. But most of us are, however, familiar with the Ten Commandments, which God gave at the beginning of giving the law. I I like to think of it as like a quick start guide to the law, maybe the first quick start guide in history. So let's take a look at what those Ten Commandments entail. The first one is pretty simple. Don't worship any other gods but me. They were entering into a land that was polytheistic, and and God said, I want you to be solely devoted to me. Next command, don't make an idol of any kind. Don't worship the creation over the creator. Next, don't misuse the name of God. That can be just idly throwing it out in a promise, or it can be uh, just using it in profanity. There's all kinds of ways that we can misuse his name. Next, keep the Sabbath day holy. This goes back to creation and the idea that God created the world and everything in it in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. It's about a work-life balance, basically, keeping our life in control instead of out of control. Next, honor your father and mother. Respect them, care for them throughout the entirety of their life. Next, don't murder. Don't kill someone without just cause. Next, don't commit adultery, which means don't have sex with somebody who's not your spouse. Next, don't steal. And if you dig into the intricacies of what this particular command means, what you come away with is this idea that don't steal. Uh, It's not complicated. Next, don't lie. Be honest in all your dealings and with a special emphasis to court proceedings and legal proceedings. Don't lie. Next, this one may be the basis that we get in trouble on the other nine. Don't covet. Coveting is that place we find ourselves sometimes where we want something we don't have and we feel we deserve it. That's coveting. Now, regardless of our belief system, wherever you are today, those 10 kind of make a really nice set of guidelines for living a moral, healthy life, right? Um, And I look at those and I, I start to wonder... How would I do if that was all I had to follow and live out all the days of my life here on earth? How would I do with the ten? I spent some time thinking through each one this week, and what I realized is six of them are really easy for me. Four of them I struggle with at times. I'm not going to tell you which four. I'll let you guess, right? You can make up your own story about me this morning. But the hard part is not the Ten Commandments. 
The hard part is that this was just the quick start guide. The law itself actually contained 613 specific commands. Now, if I'm going to mess up four of the ten, I don't stand a chance on 613. Do you? My first reaction to seeing that there are 613 is that's a lot of rules. And I think even in the most compliant among us, there's some part of us that starts to bristle when there gets to be too many rules, or especially when we don't see the immediate benefit of following the rule. Think about the first people to hear these commands. These laws were delivered to a group of more than a million people gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. They were freshly liberated from 400 years where every minute of their life was controlled by somebody else's rules. And now after two months of relative freedom, Moses comes down the mountain with 613 specific rules from God. You know, I have to think about them and wonder, what do they feel? What was the pain in that for them? And why in the world did God give these 613 rules? Well, I think a big answer to the why is that the rules that God gave, if you look at them and just the, the broad spectrum of the rules that he gave, they covered every facet of life that these freed people would now have to deal with and work in. That dealt with social responsibility, how we treat people in our world, especially the poor and the widows and the orphans and the immigrants among us. The law regulated fair business practices, like your scales had to be checked and weighed so that you were treating people fairly in your business. And if you lent money, you couldn't be an extortionist on the people that you lent the money to. It was just fair business practices. The law also prescribed a path to pursue justice in our relationships. What role would the law play and the courts play when people or property were damaged? And ultimately, what the law described was how to worship God in a way that keeps him at the center of our lives. Now, if you read these laws today, uh, my first reaction to reading through them is there are some laws in there that are just more than a little odd, right? Like, One of the rules for them was um, you can't use two types of fabric in the same garment, which is really painful if that carried through to today, right? Think about it. Just start looking at the labels in your clothes this week and see how much of a blend there is of cotton and linen and silk and wool and rayon and polyester, and the list goes on and on. And I realize fully looking around the room, the eyes of the guys just glazed over going, what? Women, you know what I mean, right? Why would God say you couldn't wear a garment that had two different kinds of fabric in it? I don't get that. And while some of them are just a little odd, some of them are really odd. I don't understand them. For example, in Numbers 15, God says, Men, if you have a suspicion that your wife is having an affair, but you don't have any proof, here's how you resolve it. You go to the temple with your wife. You explain to the rabbi what's going on. And the rabbi will dip some holy water out and set it 
and then he'll sweep up some of the dust from the floor of the temple. He'll put it in the holy water and mix it up. And then the wife is supposed to drink that concoction. If she gets sick, it proves she was unfaithful. If she gets, if she's fine, it proves that you can take her home and you can trust her. Oddly, the law doesn't say anything about whether the wife would ever trust the husband again. It just focuses on him. So seriously, I read that. That's more than a little odd. That's like, that sounds more like the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when they're trying to determine if the woman's a witch, right? Anybody familiar with that scene? It's really what it feels like. What place does that have in God's law? I don't know. But before we judge the Bible, before we judge the law of Moses too harshly, we need to remember these laws were written more than 3,000 years ago. They were written in a specific time, in a specific culture, and their message was to that culture for their protection and their benefit. And the laws that made sense then, they make us scratch our heads now. Not all of them, but some of them. That's true, though, of all codices of laws from that time period, not just the Old Testament laws. If you were to read other laws from that period, like the Code of Hammurabi or the Middle Assyrian laws, and those are, by the way, real books. I didn't make those up. But the laws that are in them come from the same time period as when the Old Testament law of Moses was given. You read them, and they've got similarly odd laws. Beyond that, if you comb through the law books in the state of Illinois, there are some still some very weird laws on the book. And I'm not talking politically. This goes way back before COVID. There are just some weird laws in Illinois. For example, in the state of Illinois, you are prohibited from eating in a building that is on fire, which may eliminate any home-cooked meals for you. I don't know. In Chicago, it's illegal to go fishing in your pajamas or seated on a giraffe. I have no idea. I would love to go back and trace that back and see what the story was that led to that law. It is illegal in Horner, Indiana, for anyone to possess or use a slingshot other than the police, which makes them the least feared police force in the state of Illinois, right? Can you imagine, like, a bank robbery and they pull up with their slingshots? It's just crazy. Uh, it is illegal to enter the city of Joliet in an automobile without first contacting the appropriate authorities to let them know that you're coming into Joliet in an automobile. Anybody follow that one lately? Then my favorite. In Moline, Illinois, it is illegal to go ice skating in the months of June and August, which means Moline must have a really bad cold snap in July every year, right? Why in the world? None of these laws make sense now, do they? At some point in history, they were written to address specific situations. They made sense then, but today, they're just a little goofy. I think the same thing is true of the Old Testament law. These laws were written in a culture that was polytheistic, patriarchal, and polygamist. Women in that day were little more than property. Religions of that day practiced horrible acts of infant and child sacrifice. God stepped into that harsh reality 
and called the Israelites to live differently. And we may not understand each one of the laws, but when we can put them in the context, when we see what the people were struggling with in their daily lives, they begin to make sense. If we look at them as a collective group for a specific time period, we get a sense of their importance. The real meaning of the law is much deeper than that, though. In the Old Testament law, God intentionally sets a very high bar for following him. If you want a relationship with God, if you want to enjoy his blessings, it's really simple. Under the law of Moses, all you have to do is obey the laws perfectly. All 613 of them. There's no wiggle room on this when the law is given. And here's the crazy thing. Even before Moses got all the laws, God sent him back down just for a check-in with the people. So when Moses went down to the people and he repeated the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him up to that point, and all the people answered loudly with one voice, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Knowing the story, that seems a little optimistic. It sounds good. We will follow God fearlessly. We will follow God faithfully. We will follow God flawlessly. It all sounds noble. It sounds doable. It gives us a specific goal that we can work towards and measure where we are in it. I can do this. I can control my destiny is part of what the law makes you feel. Um, I've talked. It's been an honor and a privilege in 40 plus years of ministry to talk with lots of people when they're in their last days or weeks of life. And invariably, the conversation will drift to, how can I know for sure where I'm going to go when I die? It's a very prominent question in almost everyone's mind. In their final days, most often what they express, in fact, I even had this conversation with my own father, what he expressed was, I hope I've been good enough that God will accept me. I've lived a good life, treated people well. I never cheated anybody in my business. And the list for different people varies, but the theme is the same in every one of them as they contemplate the end of their life and what happens next. The question is, I hope it's good enough. Do you think it is? Here's the problem with that line of thought. How do we measure goodness? Who or what forms our basis of comparison? I mean, if I compare the goodness in my life to Mother Teresa, where do I stand? I think I stand a better chance comparing my life to Darren's. I mean, you know? What's the basis of comparison for good enough? How good is it? It's possible that we can live our entire lives thinking that's what God wants us. He wants us to be a good moral person. That that's the key to getting into heaven. And if that's true, it still leaves us with questions. How good is good enough? The law answers the question. I don't like the answer and I don't think you will either. The law gave each individual one shot to earn God's favor. One chance to earn a relationship with him. All you had to do was follow the law 
perfectly, without exception. In fact, Jesus' half-brother James in the New Testament writes, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. The law was given to highlight our brokenness. The law was given to show us just how futile it is to try to earn God's favor with our goodness, to earn his love, to earn his forgiveness with our goodness. The law highlights our sin and shows us that perfection will never be possible. We will never be good enough. We will never do enough good. Sounds harsh, right? It was the design of the law. It was given to be a cruel taskmaster. It's about justice. You want to be treated justly? Be perfect. It was not about mercy or grace. But here's the beauty of the story of God. Through the harsh realities of the law, God was already making a way for grace to enter the world. The law provided a way to be forgiven Kind of. I mean, the Old Testament law talks about what you do to have your sins covered. They're not removed. They're not erased. They're covered. Anytime a person became aware of their sin, whether it was incidental or, uh, intentional or accidental, that sin required a sacrifice. And so every day, all day, there would be hundreds or thousands of people lined up at the temple wanting to make sacrifices at the temple to purchase their forgiveness. Can you imagine the line of people? I'd be at the temple multiple times a day. These sacrifices illustrated for people the deadly seriousness of our sin. Sin is more than just a wrong choice. Sin is more than just a bad decision. Sin is more than just a willful act of disobedience. The consequences of sin for them every time was death. And the animal was taking their place. A substitutionary sacrifice. And every time they sinned, they started over trying to earn their salvation. Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul spent his life as a religious expert in the Jewish faith. He was a Pharisee. He studied his entire life, studied the law, understood the law, memorized the law. He studied under some of the best teachers that were available. Gamaliel is one that he cites. It was a legendary uh, Pharisee training younger men to be Pharisees. Paul in Romans describes the law in this way. He says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. It wasn't that the law was weak. There's nothing wrong with the law. It was our weakness, our sinful nature that made the law powerless. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his only son in in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end, not just to sin, but to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. The law was given to prove I will never be good enough. We will never be good enough. We can never earn our salvation. 
In the 1,400 years between the giving of the law and the birth of Christ, the nation of Israel would prove over and over and over again they were not good enough to earn it. Thanks be to God, Paul says, the law points us forward towards one who would be good enough, one who came to earth, who followed every command of the law to perfection, was without sin. He met all the requirements of the law. And then on the cross, he dealt finally and definitively with the reality of sin. As the only perfect sacrifice, he not only purchased our forgiveness, Paul said he has the power to eliminate the the power of sin in our lives. Sins that take hold of us and cause us to act in ways that we never wanted to and that we're ashamed of after. Through Jesus, he says, sin can have no control over you. I'm so grateful today that God doesn't keep us under the law. I'm grateful because I don't want to live under the law. I don't want to live under a system of structure and rules that leave me striving for perfection, failing at it multiple times a day, and then living with that guilt and shame. I'm grateful that from the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, God pointed forward to a period where Christ would come, and we would no longer live under the law, but we would live under grace. And that grace changes everything. It frees us up to live in the love and the forgiveness of God. We're no longer held captive by the fear that the law engenders, that we will accidentally or intentionally break the law. I don't have to fear where I stand with God at any given moment. I know that I am his child. I know that I am deeply loved and fully forgiven. Not just my sins hidden, they are erased as if they never existed. My status with God has nothing to do with anything I have ever done or will do. Or as we say around here, there's nothing you can do that'll make God love you less. There's nothing you can do that'll make him love you more. It's all about what Jesus has done, not what I've done. So what I want for you, what I want in my life is to be captivated by that grace. I want my life not to be driven by guilt or shame or regret or rules. I want, to be, I want to live my life motivated by that grace. I want to follow Jesus as best I can and live my life by his teachings and through the grace he gives me. I want to embody grace in every relationship that I have in my life. I want grace to fundamentally change my character. I want to walk humbly. Walk humbly in that grace of God. It's something I did not earn something I do not deserve, but something that I accept as God's free gift to me. There is no doubt in my mind that the best path forward for us is not to try to be good enough to get into God's promised land. The best path for each one of us is to live by, to live in, and to live according to the grace of God.